Welcome to another Minute Coon Street podcast that uh, Jonathan and I have been doing since since this lockdown began years and years ago. Um, and today I'm talking with I'm delighted to be talking with an old friend, World Fantasy and Shirley Jackson Award winning and 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 best selling sort of mainstream writer Daryl Gregory. <laughs> the, the 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 sort the, the best selling sort of mainstream kind of goes together when you're talking to genre people, doesn't it? No, it's yeah, and I don't I don't think my publisher thinks it's best selling. Like it didn't hit the list. They're disappointed. But for for science fiction terms, it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's um yeah, I feel like uh, sometimes you've I I've snuck into the house of mainstream just because my publisher was mainstream. Yeah, it's uh, and so. Uh, I one time had a, a interview where uh, the person on the phone says, you know, it seems like, you know, you used to write science fiction, but now you sort of transcended that genre. And, oh. and, and like Liza was in the room. She stopped and froze because she wanted to see my face as I got <laughs> angry at this person. We're like, what the hell do you mean transcend the genre? I'm like, yeah, no, it's, right. it's, I'm still writing science fiction. It's just a different publisher. Well, yeah. And uh and, and the idea of being marketed as mainstream, I mean, some writers have this. I'm curious as to what you think about this, because some writers have had the experience of wanting to get marketed stuff as mainstream and succeeded and just gotten out altogether. The, you know, the Kurt Vonnegut's of the world, I guess. But other writers, some of whom we both know personally, have finally written a novel, got it marketed as mainstream. And it turned out to be suicide because it missed the genre readers that would have automatically bought it anyway. No, right. I, there's a there's a weird thing like all of a sudden, uh, and and it and, it, and it, it, it depends on where you get placed in, both get placed in the bookstores and get placed in the conversation. If suddenly you you feel if people feel like within our genre that you've stepped outside, uh-huh. and even though you're writing, let's say like in my case it was like psychics, but if you feel like uh, you're suddenly writing mainstream now and not writing uh, science fiction. Yeah, they're not interested. You've stepped outside of the conversation. Um, so it, it, it's a weird thing. It is kind of a weird thing. Well, given the circumstances we're all under, are you uh, able to get any reading done these days? Um, not much. You know, here's <laughs> the thing. It's, it's like I'm so distracted by uh, by a couple things. Uh, one, the news is a constant barrage. So it's like every morning there's the there's the coronavirus check-in. Yeah. We read everything horrible. Um Two, I've been under deadline finishing some stuff, so that cuts into my reading time. Um, and then there's a weird thing that happens in uh, later in your career where um, you're either blurbing stuff um, or you're you're too busy with all your writer friends trading manuscripts back and forth, uh-huh. trying to fix each other's stuff. So I've read a lot of stuff. Um, like in the past two months, there have been other friends' novels, and they've been reading my novel that I was it just uh-huh. turned in, um, because we're all trying to help each other finish work. So it's a weird, distorted kind of um, reading. But I will say, I like I I, I got to read uh, Levi Tidar's um, By Force Alone. Oh yeah, which is yeah, which is a uh, yeah, I it's a, insane. It's an insane book. It's an Arthurian retelling, sort of told as if the Knights of the Round Table were made guys in the mafia. Exactly. <laughs> plus uh, uh, Judaic Kung Fu, plus yep. uh, Aliens uh, spaceship. I mean, it's the wildest, wackiest things. And I was so jealous of Levy because he's fearless. Um, and he also seems to be able to write 
whatever he wants. Uh, and I just hope this book does well because I it was such a great thing to read during the lockdown because it was so ridiculously fun that it kept making, like he can't get away with this. And I would just keep rolling along. Um, it was fantastic. One of the things I've always liked about his fiction, including the Central Station stories, is he really loves science fiction and fantasy. And there, there are all kinds of shout outs. I mean, there's a you know, there's a character from C.L. Moore in, in one of his Central Station novels. And this thing turns in, I've, I, I, I talked to him actually on one of these little discussions. How does it turn into a homage to Roadside Picnic? Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, he's got, there's so many references at play. And, and, and for, you know, and this is how I feel when I'm writing for sometimes if a mainstream audience picks up the book. Uh-huh. It's like, this is for me. I have a, like, I do have a mom. Exactly. Uh, I do have a mom test, which is, uh, can my mom read this book and like the characters, even if she doesn't get all the stuff that's going on? Um, and so I want the through line to be, make emotional sense, and I want the plot to make sense on the surface. But everything else is for me. You know, right. like if like in my first novel, I've got Philip K. Dick, Back from the Dead, animated right. by Vallis. That was purely for me, <laughs> because I've been reading a lot of Philip K. Dick. It, I didn't care that my mom had never heard of this guy. Um, but that, yeah. So you do it for yourself, and but you hope that other people reading it are well. That's an Easter egg that they'll enjoy, but it's not necessary maybe for the book. Anything else you've been reading lately? Um, yeah, I. Uh, What's funny? I'm writing. Um, uh, so much of the stuff is work driven. Um, oh yeah. I've I've uh, I re- just reread uh, the Island of Doctor Moreau. Um. Liza got me this beautiful illustrated edition uh, with art by Bill Bilson Kevitz. I had to train myself to say his name correctly. When I was growing up, he was a comic book artist, and I just thought he was Sinkowitz. Um, but it's a beautiful edition with a with a forward by Guillermo del Toro, and it's really? uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, huge, huge, uh, huge scale book. I'll, um, when we get back on video, I'll show you. Um, so it's it's just it's fun to go back and reread stuff. Um, but like I said, a lot of I, I just found myself really distracted by by news and yeah. um, magazine articles. I I, I, I want to get back to reading. I know a lot of people who have uh, who have therapists have said the therapists have told them just tr- don't turn on the news, especially don't turn on the news during the daytime. Uh, because then you're just watching in real time. I don't know if it happens in California, but in Illinois, we have the governor uh, giving a corona briefing every day and, and, and the mayor and, and health experts. And it's all depressing, basically. And it's, it's almost <laughs> never anything new in it. Um, right. And, and the other thing that makes me think about that, Del Tor- that about the uh, island of Dr. Moreau, I, I suppose everybody thinks this who sees that book. But if Del Toro wrote an introduction to it, does that mean he's interested maybe in doing a Wells adaptation? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's been made like three times. Uh, so um, my friend Jack Skillingstead, uh, uh, a great writer, and when I was living in Seattle and now when I visit, we have uh, theme video nights. Uh-huh. And we, uh, one night we watched um, three versions of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Including the really terrible Marlon Brando version, um, and they're all like a different flavor of bad. Uh, I, the, the, the the original one, I guess, was the Charles Lawton 1930s 
Island of Lost Souls, right? Yeah, and then and then we also watched. Um, uh, oh wait, I'm blanking. Um, uh, not is it Burt Lancaster? Wait, who did um, who did Planet of the Apes? Uh, oh, oh, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston. There's a Charlton Heston version. Um, yeah, so really? it's it's, <laughs> but they're all terrible. That's too bad. Uh, do you have yeah. any comfort? Do you have any comfort food reading? Even if you're not reading it now, if there's a stressful time like this and you and you know it's coming, is there something you'd escape into? Oh yeah, here's what I would recommend. Um, uh-huh. And um, the Ian Banks culture novels are my f- favorite extended series, um, and he's uh, one of my favorite all-time writers. The mm. fact that my son Ian is completely not a coincidence. <laughs> and it's great that he started reading the Ian Banks books. Um, but I've got everything Ian Banks has written, and but especially to read all the culture novels. And the latest editions have been marking which ones of his science fiction novels are culture novels, so you can even tell. Um, but Orbit's been putting them back out. Um, and they're just so great. I mean, start with Consider Phlebas and then keep going from there. But my favorite is probably... Um, Use of Weapons is probably my favorite Ian Banks uh, culture book. Do you read his mainstream novels? Do you read the Ian Banks novels? The, the, the Oh, yeah. Actually? I read everything. I mean, okay. talk about a guy who had to straddle both mainstream and – well, he refused to straddle, really. He said there's really no difference in these books. I did – a friend of a friend of the podcast, Paul Kincaid, did an excellent book on Ian Banks. Um, and he and I guess he and Ian McLeod all and they all knew each other as kids or something. And apparently Ian Banks wrote mainstream stuff because he couldn't get his first science fiction novel published. Well, <laughs> yeah. Terrific. Well, if you look at uh, I think Use of Weapons was maybe the first written. I was talking to I think so, yeah. Ian McLeod when he was visiting Seattle last year. And he, and because uh, Ian Banks credits him for helping him get it back out of storage and rearranging it and making it into its current bizarre structure which i love so much uh, it's told from each end of chronology and meets in the middle the climax is happens in the middle of time chronolo- uh, chronologically but it, it's it's the emotional climax of the book so it happens at the end it's such a great structure it is great you um, got anything you got anything coming out in the near future that we should be know of? either in the near future or the mid distant future right the mid like the mid unknown future so mm-hmm. um I just turned in the rewrite of my next book from Knopf, which is a an Appalachian horror novel, um, which we'll see how they market that, um, and uh, with monsters and everything. So oh, cool. it's a, uh, and uh, the title of it is still not set, so I won't even say because we're okay. I either have the title right from the beginning or it's a struggle throughout the entire writing of the book. Um, so that'll be coming out in either summer or fall 2021. Uh-huh. So that's more the mid future. Um, and then I'm also working on a, a novella from tour.com uh, based on um, uh, uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau. It's called the album of Dr. Moreau. And it's if what, what if a bunch of animal human hybrids uh-huh. were discovered on a science barge in the late 1990s and became a boy band. Uh, oh, sounds right. <laughs> and it's also a locked room mystery. So <laughs> I've been reading locked room mysteries. That's been my other candy during the lockdown. Any particular one? I mean, the uh, 
I'm well, to I, I I love I mean I love Agatha Christie and I read so many of those. Um, but and uh, but I went back and got um John Dixon Carr's The Hollow Man. So John Dixon Carr was, you know, he was basically crowned the king of locker room mysteries. Right. Um, he, and uh, so I went back and luckily it's on Kindle in kind of a crappily scanned version. Uh, but I could get it immediately in the lockdown and uh, read that. So. Uh, it's fun. I mean, all the conventions are there, but it's it's, it's amazing. It, like going back to locker room mysteries with like Poe and the murders in the room org, you know, like right. like Poe nailed all the conventions that we would keep reusing for the next hundred years, and uh, they're still in play in Jackson Dixon Carr. They're in play through Agatha Christie, and in Cozy Mysteries, they're still in play today. And Knives Out have made uh, has made a huge comeback to the point where my agent was saying. You know, Netflix really wants more Knives Out stuff. Do you got anything? And I'm like, well, I've got this wow. animal human hybrid thing. He's like, well, not that. <laughs> what's, the, what's the John Dixon Carr novel that you mentioned? Did you mention the specific novel? Oh yeah, it's called The Hollow Man. Oh yeah, The Hollow Man. Interestingly enough, well, I used to read him probably when I was in high school. Uh, you know, when you're a kid and you pick up paperbacks and you don't know that this book was written in the 30s, and yeah, you, it's really cool. But he wrote historical murder mysteries, I think, under the name Carter Dixon. And he had a series of two or three in which Richard Brinsley Sheridan was the detective, if I recall correctly. <laughs> and I thought that's that's the same kind of thing that everybody's doing now, where you kind of create a kind of alternate history murder mystery thing and it all blends together. And uh, I should go back and look at those myself. Well, right. I mean, there uh, it's it's a weird subgenre of mysteries, like all these Jane Austen detective stories. Yeah. Um, There's a Samuel Johnson detective. I remember reading one in, in, in high school where it was uh, a Hollywood detective set in the 30s and the Marx Brothers were in the book, you know, and it was just a tour through that 1930s was, Hollywood. That was, OK, I can tell you about that because I used to know this guy. That was Stuart Kamensky. Uh, oh, right. I didn't did remember a, that name. He did. A, well, he, because he started out as a as a film scholar, he was a professor at Northwestern, wrote a couple of very good books on American film genres, wrote a bi- the first biography of Clint Eastwood years and years ago. And then because he knew so much about writing uh, uh, about Hollywood, he decided to write a murder mystery about it. And I can tell you exactly how that started because, okay, this is not, this is me talking too much. No, he had read, he had read an, uh, an autobiography by Errol Flynn called my wicked, wicked ways, which you can probably still find somewhere. And, and Stewart knew enough about Hollywood history to realize that Errol Flynn had just written a novel about his life. None of it was true at all. He was just creating a, a, a narrative for himself. And and Stewart thought, well, I, I know enough about Hollywood so that I can put the Marx Brothers and Albert Einstein and Paul Robeson and all the, and Judy Garland. And so he wrote a whole series of murder mysteries, which I thought were a lot of fun. And well- and the thing is, like, I'd forgotten that's who wrote it. Like, this happens to me. So this happened with Ian Banks. Uh-huh. When I was in college, suddenly hand, handed me this weird novel about a kid on an island who's got a yeah. wasp factory. And I was blown away by this book. I just thought it was the weirdest damn thing. And then years later, I get an Ian Banks book. And I made no connection whatsoever to the name <laughs> of the guy who wrote that other book. And then when they when they connected, I... <laughs> It was like, wait, I was, I was, the seed was planted a while ago, and I had no idea. Great. Well, we're past our time, so I yeah. want to say, say thanks again. This has been a Cood Street podcast. We've been talking with Daryl Gregory. Thanks very much, Daryl. 
Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it.